Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here with a quick take on what happened in South Carolina and Nevada over the weekend. It's tough. It's nasty. It's mean. It's vicious. It's beautiful. <laughs> when you win, it's beautiful. And Donald Trump won the GOP primary in South Carolina. Hillary Clinton won the Democratic caucus in Nevada. And then she immediately flew to Texas. That's one of the crucial states in the next wave of primaries, March 1st. Is this a great night or what? We just won Nevada! We're going to talk about those races and what's next. First, uh, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And hey, from Las Vegas, I'm Asma Khalid. I was out here covering the Democratic caucuses, and tomorrow the GOP caucuses are here. Oh my goodness, it will not quit. It will not stop. <laughs> Dim caucus this past weekend. What are the big headlines coming out of this race? The big headline from the Democratic caucuses is that Hillary Clinton finally got a win, a real win. Over five points, okay. decisive. She righted her ship. Uh, she beat Bernie Sanders big with African-American voters in Nevada. Who were a sizable chunk. Who were a sizable chunk. That sets her up nicely for South Carolina, where, of course, the majority of the Democratic electorate is black. You know, I mean, I, I have to agree with Mara's big takeaway that this is a win for Hillary Clinton. I was talking to my dad, you know, so sort of layperson, political observer, and his first comment to me was, oh, Hillary Clinton finally won a state. And I was like, dad, you know, she won Iowa. And he's like, yeah, you know, she won with a coin toss. Yeah. I know we've debunked that. But, it, you know, <laughs> it didn't from, feel like a win, a, though, in many ways. <laughs> but it felt like a win to a layperson. And I think that's a really, really important takeaway that, that Hillary Clinton won Nevada and moving forward, this kind of gives her momentum. Um, in terms of, you know, what it felt like here, I think that she was able to organize really, really effectively. I did a piece before, uh, ahead of the caucuses, on the Asian community. You know, small community doesn't tend to participate in huge numbers, but, you know, by exit or entrance polling, it looks like it was 4 or 5% of the total. In an election that was this tight, that actually was crucial, and Hillary Clinton was concretely, I mean, organizing this community. You know, on the other hand, with Bernie Sanders, I think he has the money to stay in for a while. And so whether or not he wins states or loses states, he could just be a constant presence as we go on and who knows how long. Although it is true, the latest uh, campaign finance numbers came out this weekend and Bernie Sanders does have a remarkably high burn rate. Uh, B-E-R-N. I, I know. I, this, this, this being something that... Basically, he's going through money pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. So he's getting all of these small donations, which is, you know, which is great for him. But I mean, he's he has started to pick up the spending to try to, you know, compete with Hillary Clinton. And, you know, it, it's proof of what we've seen on the Republican side as well. I mean, you can spend a whole lot, but... What does it get you? It, it doesn't always get you everything. Yeah. I have a question for you, Danielle. Yes. Um, there seems to be some discrepancy over the Latino vote in Nevada this past weekend. Right. Who got the lion's share of it? Who won the majority? Bernie's folks said that entrance polls had him up with that demographic. But in the end, it seemed Hillary Clinton won precincts that are heavily Latino. Why are there these questions still? To be honest, it's because it was pretty close. And because entrance polls, exit polls, I mean... There's a lot of uncertainty that can come into an entrance poll like this one. And just to clarify, these entrance polls happen as people are heading into their caucus sites and they're asked questions about who they're going to vote for before they caucus. Right, exactly. And they were done on the early end, right? And that's what I sort of heard as the criticism is that there could have been, you know, a number of Hispanic voters um, coming in later on, closer to the end. 
That might be true. Okay. But this kind of happens in polling from the experts that I've talked to today. Like the, the margin of error on the Latino results was plus or minus 10 percentage points. That's a big margin of error. Right. But, but I mean, can we still remember, though, that this is a candidate, Hillary Clinton, who won the Latino vote in 2008. And we're now debating whether or not she won or lost to Bernie Sanders, who by all expectations was really never expected to win the Latino vote a few months ago. You know, I mean, I sort of think it's interesting that we're now debating this. So the fact that we have questions. Was it not her win to have lost? I mean, she she had this community locked up eight years ago. So does the fact that we have questions speak to Bernie's rise? Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, that is definitely a storyline that, you know, is, is playing out here. The other thing is that Actually, just right while I, we were sitting in the studio, I just got sent a commentary from uh, Gary Langer. He's a polling expert at Langer Research Associates, and they do analysis for ABC. And he looks at polls like this, and he thinks it might be a little bit less about Latinos and a bit more about age. He wrote, there's decent evidence that Sanders did well among Hispanics, not on the basis of their ethnicity, but because of their age. You have pretty young Latinos in Nevada, so that's that could be part mm. of it as well. And I can certainly speak to that. I mean, at Bernie Sanders' pre-caucus eve rally, I was at this outdoor pavilion, and he had a huge number of young Latino supporters there. Mm. Um, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I I just think this is all about uh, young people, young Latinos. I think Hillary Clinton has a young people problem. Across races. Across races. I think that she's in danger of it becoming deeply uncool to be for Hillary Clinton if you're a young person. Mm -hmm. And I think if she's going to win in the fall, she doesn't just have to win young people, but she has to get them out in the kind of numbers that Barack Obama did. And that's the question that this raises. Um, Can she get them out? Will they respond to her if she's the nominee the way they're responding to Bernie? What's that going to take? Does he have to campaign for her enthusiastically, Um, especially if she's facing a ticket on the Republican side that has a young new generation candidate? Mm. Yeah. So going forward, what should we expect from Team Sanders and Team Clinton over the next few weeks, Mara? Well, I think what you're going to see from Hillary Clinton in South Carolina was pretty much summed up by that powerful Morgan Freeman ad. Two of them now. Mm-hmm. Two of them now. Yeah. She says their names. Trayvon, Trayvon Martin, Martin. Shot to death. Don Trey Hamilton. Hamilton. Unarmed. Sandra Bland. Did nothing wrong. And makes their mothers fight for justice her own. I mean, like, like we hear, like, literally, her voice and the black voice right. come together as one. Right. Just like she's always stood with us. Hillary Clinton. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. She has allied herself personally with the families of young African-Americans who've been killed by police. She has really made it a point to showcase her intimate connection and longstanding kind of roots in the civil rights struggle. And of course, Bernie Sanders says, hey, wait a minute, I got arrested in 1963. there was a photo that came out this weekend. But I really think that this is something longstanding and deep. And um, there are reports from South Carolina that Bernie Sanders had a really difficult time. Yeah, kind of awkward time Awkward time connecting in church with with the African in a black church. And Hillary Clinton has a lot of validators. I mean, a lot. You know, she's got Morgan Freeman, who's the voice of God, as we all know. She's got um, Jim Jim Clyburn. She's got John Lewis. I mean, these are powerful, powerful validators. Mm -hmm. So I do think that Bernie Sanders is going to be looking elsewhere. He's going to be looking at other states where he can make inroads. And as Ozma pointed out, he has the money to go to the distance, whether he wins anywhere or not. He can stay in till 
Philadelphia in July. Um, he's had an impact on the race. He's had an impact on her, which maybe was what he wanted all along. Yeah. He talked more about making a political revolution than this is what's going to happen when I am in the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's already made a big difference in this race. You know, I was watching the latest round of ads for black people from Bernie and Hillary. And I noticed something that I hadn't noticed until this morning. All of these Clinton ads that play up her relationship to the black community, you see her shaking the hands of black people, hugging black people, holding black babies. Mm -hmm. And then there was this one Bernie Sanders ad where Erica Garner, the daughter of Eric Garner, the man who was killed by NYPD, there's this four-minute ad of her talking about being an activist and the loss of her father and what it means and how she identifies with Bernie because he sees these issues. But there's either these shots of Erica Garner with her daughter in New York and shots of Eric Garner or there are shots of Bernie. Hmm. You never actually see images of Bernie Sanders with actual black people. Uh And I just now noticed it. And it's like, it seems to be that's what his problem is. It's not that he doesn't know how to talk about Black Lives Matter or talk about things that matter to black people. Mm -hmm. They just feel like there is no relationship. And how do you change that? I don't know. Yeah, they, look, politics is about one-on-one connections, especially now, and that's what Hillary has invested in. And Bernie Sanders did catch fire, and he had a message that really worked. He's incredibly disciplined. He talks about Wall Street and income inequality and a rigged system and billionaires, no matter what the question and is. And he talks about <laughs> race now in every stump speech. Yeah. You know, he's making right. an effort. Yeah, he's yeah. making an effort. But I think it's going to be tough because when you look at the polls and all the states that are coming up for March 1st, she has big leads. And when then when you ask the question why, and you look deeper into those polls, it's because she has big leads in, with African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are the keen makers for the Democratic primaries. No doubt. not Especially the ones coming up. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the GOP. Mara uh, Trump won pretty big there in South Carolina. We know that Cruz and Rubio basically tied for second, mm-hmm. and the two of them are kind of calling this a three-man race now. Is that the case? I think it is a three-man race. I think if it was anybody else but Donald Trump, we would call him the prohibitive front-runner, somebody who huh. wins as big as he did in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Um, under any other normal circumstances, we would say he looks pretty unstoppable. So why are we so slow to say well, that Well, we're now? slow to say that because so many people in the Republican Party think he'd be a disaster if he'd be in the top mm. of the ticket, and they either just can't believe he will be the nominee or they are going to try to stop him from being the nominee. I think that South Carolina was a bad night for Ted Cruz because Donald Trump Trump won evangelicals, and that was Ted Cruz's kind of ace in the hole. And when you look ahead to these other southern states, that's how he was going to win. I think it was a good night for Marco Rubio because Jeb Bush dropped out. Yeah, uh, I don't think he did as well as his campaign would have liked him to after you get the endorsement of Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Trey Gowdy. I mean, you should do better than tying for second. But to me, the most interesting visual of the South Carolina primary was Rubio's victory speech and when he stood on stage with Nikki Haley, Indian American, mm-hmm. Tim Scott, African American. We in the are air. the future. It was mm-hmm. We Are the Future. And the interesting thing is he gave a speech where he said, if you are a single mother. If tonight you are that single mother who has made it the purpose of your life to, see, to leave your children better off than yourself, in the 21st century, we conservatives will fight for you. If you are the dad who works two jobs, we conservatives will fight for you. If you're the 17-year-old high school student who wants a big future, 
And so you get up well before dawn to take two buses to a better school halfway across town. We are fighting for we'll you. Fight for you. I heard that and I said, wow, did Bob Shrum write his speech? Huh. Bob Shrum is a famous Democratic speechwriter yeah. who's been mm-hmm. writing that kind of fighting uh-huh. populist speech for Democrats from Kennedy to mm-hmm. Gore to Kerry for, for yeah. you know, and I actually talked to Bob Shrum today. What did he say? And what he pointed out, and this is the whole Rubio theory, is that uh, Rubio has the rhetoric, but the program doesn't necessarily match up. And and Rubio's theory and his pollster, Whit Ayers, has written a whole book about this, is that there's nothing wrong with the Republican ideology. You just need a better message and messenger. In other hmm. words, you need a better box. Not You don't need to change the pizza. Mm-hmm. And Rubio <laughs> has a really good-looking box. He's young. He's <laughs> uh, appealing. He's Hispanic. He now is starting to talk in a very inclusive way. And also, we're fighting for you. And he, But he did say in that speech, he said... Because we come from where you are now. Because we live the way you live now. And we know that limited government and free enterprise and a strong national defense is a better way forward for you, for me, for us, and for the United States of America. It sounds like the type of message that could really do well in the general. I guess the question is, does he get there? Absolutely. It was a general election speech. But the interesting thing to me going forward is, okay, it's a three-man race. Mm -hmm. Rubio said that. I agree with him. But it has to be a two-man race for somebody to defeat Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. Donald mm. Trump benefits as long as there is more than one person running against well, him. Because imagine if all of Trump and Rubio's votes were together, it would be what, like over 40%? You mean if all of Cruz and Rubio's votes were together? Yes, and theoretically that's true. But Donald Trump says, wait, I'll get some of those votes if someone drops out. Don't just mm-hmm. assume uh, that anybody who's not yeah. voting for me now won't vote yeah. for me ever. Um, but you have to think about how this race becomes a two-man race. Cruz would have to drop out. And and if you're looking forward to your home state of Texas, where there's a tremendous number of delegates, why would you drop out? And they all have money, right? right? And and Cruz has plenty of money. As a matter of fact, he's really well-funded, has a lot of cash on hand, and he's very well-organized. The other thing that we're waiting for is if the Republican establishment wants to stop Trump, why haven't they tried yet? There have but been how some would super they? PACs. Well, there have been some super PACs out there with ads against Trump. But not Certainly that much. Jeb Bush fell on his sword trying to stop yeah. Trump. Mm-hmm. But Marco Rubio himself has not taken a map. What's the on. deal with that? There is an ad by a Rubio-supporting super PAC that does go after Trump on his temperament. Now, we saw Cruz try to go after Trump on his ideology, saying he wasn't a real conservative. That does not seem to have worked. No. Certainly temperament is, according to the polls, Donald Trump's weakest attribute. So Rubio is now going to try to take him on uh, on temperament. What we haven't seen yet is a real knockdown, drag out Trump Rubio fight. But Mm -hmm. I have a question for the group. So we're seeing Trump energize new GOP voters, lead to record turnout in these GOP primaries and get a lot of folks calling themselves Republican again. If he wins and continues to do well, how is that bad for the party? How is well, that bad for the GOP? He are, has re-energized them, no? Well, you know, there are actually Republicans who think that he could beat Hillary Clinton because what he could do is get even more of the white vote right. than yeah. Mitt Romney. People now, we thought, we the thought Mitt Romney rights, yeah. got the, as much of the white vote as a Republican could get. Barack Obama got 39% of the white vote in 2012. That's, we thought, about as low as a Democrat can get of the white vote and still win. But what if Donald Trump could get even more blue collar, we used to call them Reagan Democrats, um, union members, and then and he doesn't he have turnout? to win. And he yeah. and he ups turnout and he doesn't have to win 
that much more minorities, which mm-hmm. would be his biggest problem. Although, the, to get back to your earlier analogy, I mean, is is what's what the Republican Party might fear about Trump? Is it that he's changing the pizza essentially? I oh, mean, he's changing the pizza. Yeah, There's no I doubt mean, about it. So, I mean, is, I oh, mean, yeah. how much does that weaken the party? Well, then, that is he... a whole other discussion because what when you look at what Donald Trump stands for, uh, he doesn't resemble a Republican or a conservative at all. Right. He is against free trade. He's against immigration. He is against entitlement reform. Mm -hmm. We don't know where he is on Obamacare because he said about five different confusing things. He said he is for government taking care of everybody's health care, but it's unclear what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just completely confusing. But it seems like short term win, but maybe not a lot, like ruins the party. That's what I was going to say. It's like a last stand. The Republican Party is going through an identity crisis, Uh, if not a civil war. And they have to figure out what kind of party are they? Are they a nativist, xenophobic party of Donald Trump? anti-free trade, um, or are they an inclusive, modern party of of Marco Rubio? So we should also talk about what's going to happen tomorrow in Nevada. There's a GOP caucuses. Who's going to win there? Donald Trump, I think. By how much? I mean, I don't know, but he's ahead by double digits, like he has been ahead in these other states, and he has pulled it off. Now, it is a caucus state, might be a little tougher, but Donald Trump his name is on a lot of big buildings I've in Las in the Vegas. Trump Tower before. Yeah, nice. so he he's has a presence there, and uh, he is considered to be the favorite to win. So that would be three in a row. Wow! And this is Rubio's childhood home. This though. is Rubio's I mean, childhood home. No, but you know, you yeah. have to look at the schedule, and you have to say, where could somebody beat Trump? Cruz says, "Hey, I'm the only person who's ever beat Donald Trump." So that's his claim to fame. Okay, where else? Where in the states coming up? Texas, Marco maybe? Rubio or Ted Cruz. Cruz. Ted Cruz might be able to meet him, beat him in Texas. Where could Marco Rubio mm-hmm. win? Doesn't the guy who the entire Republican establishment is trying to coalesce behind, doesn't he have to win somewhere? I don't know. Where's he going to win? I want to talk about a guy that we haven't talked about yet today and that we'll probably never talk about again. Jeb Bush, who dropped out Saturday night. Uh, Jeb Bush. What a fall. He, was, he, he at John one Kasich. point was the front, 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 front runner. Jeb Remember Bush that? was the old mm-hmm. Republican Party. We don't know if Donald Trump or Marco Rubio is the new Republican Party, but right now Donald Trump is the new Republican Party. Jeb Bush, to his credit, uh, never changed his stripes. He took on Donald Trump when nobody else would. Um, and I think he acquitted himself with honor. He stayed decent and civil. And, uh, you know, what he was selling, the Republican Party just wasn't buying this year. You know, I have been totally consumed over the past two days with all of these postmortems on his campaign. Uh, And everyone has so many theories. So I've seen several and I want to list them and and you tell me what you think of them. So one, um, he thought that he was a choice of the GOP establishment, but he, he overthought he that, but, but yeah. not all of the establishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, two, he really couldn't compete with John Kasich, who fulfilled the role of thoughtful moderate better than he did. Well, Some other folks say that the campaign never had a clear strategy. No one was ever really in charge and had a clear line of attack to deal with Trump and whatever. Some folks say that he overplayed the influence that money and ads could have. They thought they could just buy all the ads and eat it. But that doesn't work in a world where Trump has so much earned media and can put out attack ads on his Instagram, right? But like, so there's all these theories. But for me, it points to the central critique that I've had with Jeb Bush's campaign. He was never really in control of his own narrative. It was always about his brother and his mother and mm-hmm. his father and how he fits into that. He was so caught up in this narrative and this soap opera that was bigger than him. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's. I think it's just fascinating how there's that that whole the party decides narrative that's out there that yeah. the establishment really does pick the person. And not only that, 
but that Jeb Bush, it, it's so hard to overstate just how totally insane his money lead was. He had a fantastic amount of money, which, you know, arguably should have given him a little bit more breathing room. The bottom line, a little bit like Mara was saying, so what? The point is there is an appetite here and an astoundingly low number of Americans trust the government. This is how the electorate has changed. People hate Washington. And so if you're part of the establishment, who cares how much he, money you spend? But the thing is, he had never he had never been in Washington himself. His dad had, his brother had, but That's not true. Jeb. Jeb was Florida. Anyway, uh, right. final thoughts on this? I just feel, I kind of almost feel bad for the I guy. I mean, I think as Mara was saying, he was just not the right guy for the current climate. I mean, the fact that his brother came out and campaigned with him in South Carolina, his brother, George W. Bush, who was hugely popular in South Carolina, and he still couldn't get very far. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Find us on Twitter. Email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. And catch our coverage on your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And from Las Vegas, I'm Asma Khalid. We'll be back later this week to recap tomorrow's GOP caucus in Nevada and the GOP debate that is happening on Thursday night. Until then, one last Please clap for Jeb Bush. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. We'll miss you, brother Jeb. Exclamation mark. (laughs) 